scientific and material progress with the sense of responsibility that comes of inner development. That is why I believe this dialogue between religion and science is important, for from it may come developments that can be of great benefit to mankind. When it comes to the human problems presented by our destructive emotions, Buddhism has much to say to science. A central aim of Buddhist practice is to reduce the power of destructive emotions in our lives. With that aim in mind, Buddhism offers a wide range of theoretical insights and practical methods. If any of these can be shown through scientific tests to be of benefit, then there is every reason to find ways to make them available to everyone, whether or not they are interested in Buddhism itself. Such scientific assessment was one result of our dialogue. I am glad to say that the mind and life discussion reported in this book was more than a meeting of minds between Buddhism and science. The scientists went a step beyond and have begun programs to test several Buddhist methods that may be of benefit to all in dealing with destructive emotions. I invite readers of this book to share in our explorations of the causes and cures for destructive emotions and to reflect on the many questions raised that have compelling importance for us all. I hope you will find this encounter between science and Buddhism as stimulating as I did. Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama, August 28, 2002. There is a poignant arc between March 2000 when the events chronicled in this book occurred and the book's completion. When the following dialogues took place, the world had left behind the horrors of the 20th century and many of us looked hopefully to the human future. Then came the tragedies of September 2001 and we were faced again with reminders that calculated large-scale inhumanity was still very much with us. Most days that brand of barbarity lurks in the background of our collective awareness, but brutal hatred will capture center stage again and again until, as with the rest of the destructive emotions, we understand its roots and find ways to keep cruelty at bay. That common challenge for humanity lies at the heart of this tape, which documents a collaboration between the Dalai Lama and a group of scientists to understand and counter destructive emotions. Our brief was to explore how destructive emotions eat away at the human mind and heart and what we might do to counter this dangerous streak in our collective nature. And we did so with the Dalai Lama, whose life itself is an object lesson in handling historical injustice. The Buddhist tradition has long pointed out that transforming destructive emotions lies at the heart of spiritual practice. Indeed, some hold that whatever lessens destructive emotions is spiritual practice. From the perspective of science, these emotional states pose a perplexing challenge. These are brain responses that have shaped the mind and played a crucial role in human survival. But now, in modern life, they pose grave dangers to our individual and collective fate. Our meeting explored a range of urgent questions about that perennial human predicament, our destructive emotions. Are they an unchangeable part of the human legacy? What makes these urges so powerful? leading otherwise rational people to commit acts they later regret. What is the place of such emotions in our evolution? Are they essential for human survival? How much plasticity might there be in the brain 
And how might we shift in a more positive direction the very neural systems that harbor destructive impulses? Most important, how can we overcome them? The first seeds for the meeting that dealt with these burning questions were planted when my wife and I happened to be staying in a guest house in Dharamsala, India, where another guest was editing what was to become the Dalai Lama's book, Ethics for a New Millennium. The editor asked me to comment on an early draft of the book. As I read the draft, I was struck by the relevance of new research on emotions to the Dalai Lama's thesis. A few days later, I was able to review some of these findings during a short meeting with him. For instance, data on how in well-nurtured children the first signs of the capacity for empathy, so crucial for compassion, emerges early in life intrigued the Dalai Lama. I asked if he would like a fuller briefing on the most recent psychological research on emotions at some point. Yes, he answered, but specified he wanted it to focus specifically on destructive emotions. Later he clarified that he wanted a scientific perspective on what Buddhists call the three poisons, hatred, craving, and delusion. We agreed that here the Western view would differ from the Buddhist perspective, but those differences would themselves be informative. I then took his request to Adam Engel, the chairman of the Mind and Life Institute, to see if the topic might fit in the series of ongoing meetings they had run since 1987, in which the Dalai Lama met with select groups of experts to explore Buddhist and Western scientific perspectives on various subjects. The series seemed an ideal forum for this topic. This encounter would be an active joint inquiry into deep issues of the human spirit, where the Dalai Lama, joined by other Buddhist scholars, would also act as an interlocutor for science in ways that could stretch the thinking of the scientists themselves. We would begin with a philosopher to widen the framework for our inquiry, Alan Wallace, then at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and a scholar of Buddhism and regular translator for the Dalai Lama at these meetings, was my co-chair for philosophy, while I focused on finding the right mix of scientists. Owen Flanagan, a philosopher of mind at Duke University, was to start our conversation by presenting Western views on a fundamental question. Which emotions, apart from the most obvious, such as anger and hatred, are to be counted among the destructive ones? Mathieu Ricard, a Tibetan Buddhist monk who also holds a Ph.D. in biology, was to present the Buddhist perspective on destructive emotions. Our working definition going into the meeting was straightforward. Destructive emotions are those that cause harm to ourselves or to others. But as we pursued the discussion, different views emerged on just which emotions are, in fact, harmful, and when and why. Paul Ekman, a psychologist at the University of California at San Francisco, and a world expert on the facial expression of affect, began our scientific exploration of the basic dynamics of emotions. He brought a Darwinian perspective to our conversation, one suggesting that destructive emotions remain in the repertoire of the human heart as a trade-off in the evolutionary quest for survival. For further insights from neuroscience, we turn to Richard Davidson of the University of Wisconsin, a founder of the field of affective neuroscience. He shared findings that pinpointed the brain circuitry involved in a range of destructive emotions, from the craving of an addict to the paralyzing fears of a phobic and the out-of-control viciousness of a mass murderer. But his data also pointed to another promise, 
the sites in the brain that inhibit destructive urges, as well as those that replace disturbing feelings with equanimity or joy. A cross-cultural view came from Jeannie Tsai, a psychologist at Stanford, whose research focuses on differences in how people experience emotions from culture to culture. Her findings reminded us of the need to recognize differences among people even as we pursued universal means to overcome the threat of destructive emotions. Along with analyzing the dynamics that underlie our destructive propensities, we hope to turn also to the search for solutions. To that end, we heard from Mark Greenberg, a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania and a pioneer in programs for social and emotional learning. He reported on school curricula for children that helped them master destructive emotions rather than simply acting on those impulses. As it turned out, that report would spur us to begin to design a similar program for adults. Our last day focused on how collaborations between advanced meditation practitioners and neuroscientists might further scientific understanding of the positive potential for emotional transformation. Francisco Varela, co-founder of the Mind and Life Institute and research director of a national neuroscience laboratory in Paris, reported on experiments dissecting the neural activity underlying a moment of perception. And Richard Davidson argued for neuroplasticity, suggesting that meditation practice could produce beneficial plasticity in the brain's affective centers, inhibiting destructive emotions while fostering positive ones. We found ourselves pursuing the search for practical methods that could be borrowed from Buddhism or the West to come up with a lesson plan for living with full attention and self-awareness, with self-control and responsibility, with empathy and compassion. In other words, living with the skills that allow people to overcome their own destructive emotions. Our story starts with this intriguing collaboration between a centuries-old science of mind and cutting-edge neuroscience. Lama Oser strikes most anyone who meets him as resplendent, not because of his maroon and gold Tibetan monk's robes, but because of his radiant smile. Oser, a European-born convert to Buddhism, has trained as a Tibetan monk in the Himalayas for more than three decades. But today, Oser, whose name has been changed here to protect his privacy, is about to take a revolutionary step in the history of the spiritual lineages he has become a part of. He will engage in meditation while having his brain scanned by state-of-the-art brain imaging devices. This was the first experiment with someone at Oser's level of training using sophisticated measures. It can take scientists deeper than they have ever been into charting the specific links between highly disciplined mental strategies and their impact on brain function. And this research agenda has a pragmatic focus, to assess meditation as mind training, a practical answer to the perennial human conundrum of how we can better handle our destructive emotions. While modern science has focused on formulating ingenious chemical compounds to help us overcome toxic emotions, Buddhism offers methods for training the mind, largely through meditation practice. Indeed, Buddhism explicitly explains the training Oser has undergone as an antidote to the mind's vulnerability to toxic emotions. If destructive emotions mark one extreme in human proclivities, this research seeks to map their antipode, the extent to which the brain can be trained to dwell in a constructive range, 
contentment instead of craving, calm rather than agitation, compassion in place of hatred. One compelling question the research with Oser raises is whether a person can bring about lasting positive changes in brain function that are even more far-reaching than medication in their impact on emotions. And that question in turn raises others. For instance, if in fact people can train their minds to overcome destructive emotions, could practical non-religious aspects of such training be part of every child's education? Or could such training in emotional self-management be offered to adults, whether or not they were spiritual seekers? These very questions had been raised over the course of a remarkable five-day dialogue held the year before between the Dalai Lama and a small group of scientists and a philosopher of mind at his private quarters in Dharamsala, India. The research with Oser marked one culmination of several lines of scientific inquiry set in motion during the dialogue. There, the Dalai Lama had been a prime mover in inspiring this research. In a real sense, he was an active collaborator in turning the lens of science on the practices of his own spiritual tradition. This program renders my account of the conversations that inspired the Madison research, of the larger questions behind the research, and of the greater implications for us all of this sweeping exploration into how humanity might counter the centrifugal drag of our destructive emotions. It was at the invitation of Richard Davidson that Oser had come to the E.M. Keck Laboratory for Functional Brain Imaging and Behavior on the Madison campus of the University of Wisconsin. The laboratory was founded by Davidson, a leading pioneer in the field of affective neuroscience, which studies the interplay of the brain and emotions. The collaboration began before Oser even went near the MRI with a meeting to design the research protocol. As the eight-person research team briefed Oser, everyone in the room was acutely aware that they were in a bit of a race against time. The Dalai Lama himself would visit the lab the very next day, and they hoped by then to have harvested at least some preliminary results to share with him. With Oser's consultation, the research team agreed on a protocol where he would rotate from a resting, everyday state of mind through a sequence of several specific meditative states. Tibetan Buddhism may well offer the widest menu of meditation methods, and it was from this rich offering that the team in Madison began to choose what to study. The initial suggestions from the research team were for three meditative states, a visualization, one-pointed concentration, and generating compassion. The three methods involved distinct enough mental strategies that the team was fairly sure they would reveal different underlying configurations of brain activity.